All right. So, uh, yeah. So, so uh, every now and then, I'm not a huge chef. I don't do a lot of cooking. We do a little bit of cooking. I know a little bit about uh, the preparation of food for friends coming over. And here's one thing that I know. I know that there is good barbecue and there's bad barbecue. There's good Thanksgiving turkey and there's bad Thanksgiving turkey. And one of the things I've learned about the different preparations is simply this. If you cook something and then at the very end you sauce it, it's not going to be that great. If you take something like some meat and then you, uh, you marinate it beforehand, it's going to be a lot better. But recently, I've learned that if you get a giant meat syringe, which is a thing that really exists in the world we live in, and you then inject flavoring into that meat and cook it, it's fantastic. And so the reason I use that as an analogy is because this text where Paul is writing to a church that he planted about 11 years ago, Paul is now in this, uh, he's in jail and he's not sure if he's gonna lose his life or not. He's heard that the church he planted in Philippi is going through a rough time and he's decided that he's gonna write them some words of encouragement. And what he wants them to do as he gets to the end of that book, which is where we're at this afternoon, is he wants them to learn how to, to inject the gospel into their whole life. He wants them to inject Jesus, to invite Christ into their whole life because he knows something that I think we wrestle with often, which is that we come to faith in Jesus and then we very much see that the gospel plays a pivotal role in our spiritual life, in our Sunday life, in our, uh, in our quiet time life, in our Bible reading life. But we sometimes forget that the gospel has implications in our whole life. And so what my hope this afternoon is to do is that we might look at our whole lives and remind ourselves of the importance of injecting Christ, inviting Christ into the whole of our lives. So the first thing I want to talk about before I even get into a sermon about injecting Christ into our whole lives is I want to remind you, those of you who don't know this, this will be new, but those of you who do know this, you need to hear this at the outset. And that is that our condition doesn't determine our position. Let me just say at the outset, your effectiveness at doing the things that I'm going to call you to do tonight do not affect where you are at in, in Christ right? That you are not, you do not get saved. You don't get heaven. You don't get to be made new. None of that rests on your ability to do these things right. The gospel is the good news that our position before God, that we can know that we are fully known, fully loved, fully accepted, and completely assured rests not on our performance, but on the work of Jesus. Amen? I'm going to say that a lot. I'm going to ask for amens a lot. So that's just something I do. Amen? Right, it's built on Christ and what he has done. Because anytime you preach a sermon where you begin to tell people you should do this and you should do this and you should do this, our hearts tend to hear, well, if I do this, then God will love me more. If I do this, God will accept me more. If I do this, then I'll get to heaven. And the gospel rejects all of those and says that the way in which we are made new has everything to do with what Christ has done and nothing to do with what we have done, amen? And that's good news, right? Amen? 
That's good news. All right, so our condition does not determine our position. With that, let's dive into the text. In Philippians chapter four, verse one, Paul opens up by saying, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Paul is a church planter, but he's also a pastor. He has a heart for this church. He's running out of parchment paper. He gets to the end of this letter and he begins to sort of bullet point some things. And the first thing he talks about is the importance of Christ in our relationships. Christ in our relationships. When he gets to verse two, he says, uh, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. He gets to the end of his letter, and I want you to imagine what's happening here. There are two women in the church. There's some good news and some bad news. Here's first the good news. The good news is that these two ladies are Christian. They know Jesus. That's good news. Their name is written in the book of life. The second piece of good news is that they have been leaders in the church, and they have faithfully served with Paul for a long time. That's also some very good news. Here's the bad news. Whenever people talk about Euodia and Syntyche, all we talk about is the drama between these two ladies. And that's a rough thing to be remembered for, right? If you can imagine, it's hard to do, but imagine that I took the stage or or the floor uh, this, this afternoon and I said, I have a sermon and my sermon is written to you two people. You two have got some drama, and we're going to talk about it collectively as a church together. Right? I can imagine that you would be like, hey, let's not invite that guy back again, right? Because it seems odd to just call out two people in the church. And yet that's what Paul does. He goes right after Eudea and Syntyche, and we don't know what their drama is. We do not know what's happening. Like, I would love the TMZ relationship aspect of what's going on. I, will, I want to know. I don't know. I'm like, I'm, I'm like, I like drama. I like being involved in that or knowing about that, even when it's not good for me. When that thing happened last week or two weeks ago with Taylor Swift and Kanye West and the Kardashians, I was really interested in that whole story, even though I don't really care about any of them. Um, I just, that's not really, I'm not, but, but when I, when drama stirs up, it gets very interesting. So my interest initially is what's happening between Eudea and Syntyche. It's one of the questions I have for God when I get to heaven is that I maybe get a chance to sit with these two ladies and be like, what happened back there? So much though for 2,000 years, when people say your name, that's what they think about drama in the church. It's a tough way to be remembered. We don't know what's happened, but here's what we do know about what's true in the church and what Paul cares about. And that is that in a church, there aren't any private leaks in the boat. That when there's drama between people in the church, when there are issues between people in the church, it really does affect everybody. And so Paul sees this, and he sees that it's incredibly important that these two women actually agree in the Lord, right? He, he actually says that his, his, their goal is to agree in the Lord. Now, he's been preaching in Philippians and talking about the importance of having the same mind of Christ. And what he means by that is he wants them to invite Jesus into their fractured relationship. He wants them to invite Jesus into their broken relationship, which is sometimes not what we want to do in the church. We'd much rather show up on Sunday and just know you sit over there, I sit over there, and that's just the way this thing goes. But instead, Paul goes, no, you, you've got to do something that's counterintuitive but vital, Your hurt feelings are important, but they are not as important as the gospel or Christian unity. 
Your hurt feelings are important, but they're not as important as the gospel or Christian unity. So you have to learn to make your, your, how you feel matters. It really does matter. Don't mishear me. But the reality is your hurt feelings can never take precedence over what God has done, what God wants to do, and the importance of the ministry of what the Bible calls reconciliation. Amen? And so the question I'd want to press to you right now is, like, how are your relationships Like, how are those things going for you? And if you're not sure if I'm talking to you, I'm definitely talking to you right now, right? Because again, we tend to go, Jesus saved me and now I'm a part of a church and it's okay if I have issues with someone else. Paul says, no, it's not. You've actually got to do something about this. You've got to have the same mind. You've You've got to invite Jesus into your hurt feelings. One of the beauties of the gospel is the reminder that we are imperfect people. I love that in the Lord's prayer, Jesus reminded us that we're going to have to constantly pray that God would forgive us as we forgive others. If if you're in a place right now where you've got some beef with someone in the church and you've got an issue and you're sitting, you're right now, you're kind of, you're not sitting near them because you, you, you don't want to deal with that drama or that difficulty or that relationship. I want you just to kind of think about two numbers. The first number is 6 billion. The next number is 10,000. 6 billion, 10,000. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus tells a story, and it's a story of a king, and a king has uh, a servant, and that servant owes this king $6 billion, the equivalency of $6 billion. He's in debt $6 billion. Now, if you had a $100 debt, my guess is that the vast majority of you could find a way to make that to pay that off. If you had a $1,000 debt, again, I think that the most of you could pay that off. If you had a $10,000 debt, I think some of you could pay that off. If you had a $100,000 debt, I think that there are some of you in this room who could get desperate enough, make enough phone calls to be able to pay that off. If you had a million dollars worth of debt, there might be one of you, one of you with some connections, with some friends, with some people who just owe you a big favor that you could make that happen. But $6 billion is a lot more than even one million. It's an incomprehensible amount of debt. And this, Jesus tells this story of a king who has a servant and that servant owes him six billion. And the king says to the servant, you know what? I totally forgive you of that debt, completely forgiven. He receives this forgiveness, like, oh my gosh, you forgive me six billion, that's amazing, I can't believe it. And then this servant, someone owes this servant $10,000. And the servant then turns to the one who owes him 10,000 and goes, you owe me 10,000, you better pay up or there's gonna be trouble. Now the king finds out about that. And the king says, how on earth could you possibly withhold forgiving that after you have been forgiven so much? The same is true of our relationships with one another. Like no one has sinned against you 6 billion. No one has. But Scripture declares again and again that our sin before God is that big of a deal. It's that weighty. And yet in Christ, we are utterly, completely, totally forgiven of that debt. We must then learn to turn those who are indebted to us and we must remind ourselves that we know what it's like to be in debt. We know what it's like to be forgiven of that debt. And then we become in this world and in our churches extensions of that forgiveness. Amen? 
Christ in our relationships. Now, for some of you, that might be a little challenging. That might be a little hard. What does Paul say? Well, first, he, he, he asks them, um, he says, yes, in verse three, I ask you also, true companion, that must be someone's nickname in the church. We don't know who it is, but they just heard true companion. We're like, oh, he's talking about me. True companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together. Uh, if you have issues with someone in the church, it's okay to invite someone else in to making sure that reconciliation happens. But in Christ, the goal in our relationships, especially in the church, is reconciliation. Now, I'm not talking about building your squad. I'm not talking about like making a case. I'm not talking about I need you and you get you and now we have teams and we're gonna have a big sort. No, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about if there are people in your life and you are in fractured relationship with them, the goal in Christ is reconciliation and you bear a responsibility because of the way God has forgiven you to then turn to others and even if you need help to invite someone else in so that reconciliation can be made possible because the church really is a city on a hill, when people begin to go, I don't understand that church called Collective. Those people, they fight with each other, they disagree with each other, but they always forgive each other. That doesn't happen outside these walls. Or have you been on Facebook recently? Or have you watched any of the political anything recently? We don't do that. We divide. The gospel calls us to reconcile. So, Christ in our relationships. We don't wait to forgive someone. We invite others in. How are your relationships? Is there anybody that you have a broken relationship with that you need to fix? Okay, second sermon. Christ in our joy. Just getting going here. Here we go. Verse four. Verse four says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. It's nice to have that right there. That's what I'm talking about. That giant, those giant letters on the side of this wall. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. There is a difference between human happiness and Christian joy. There's a difference between human happiness and Christian joy. In fact, one of the things that makes me sad as a pastor is when people come to Jesus because what they expect is human happiness and then they're left disappointed. What is human happiness? Well, human happiness is sunshine on a cloudy day. That's human happiness, right? Human happiness is chocolate. That's human happiness. Human happiness is when you look in the mirror and you look a little bit younger than you did yesterday, right? That's human happiness. Human happiness is when the scale heads the other direction, right? That's human happiness. The company Uber, uh, which is around Los Angeles, about a year or two ago, wanted to give people happiness. And so what they decided to do was they were going to show up to workplaces with what? Does anyone know? Puppies, because what's more happy than people with puppies? You never see people sad when they're playing with puppies. And so Uber said, we're going to go out and we're going to make sure that people have puppiness. That is happiness. That's what people in our society want. They're constantly pursuing and chasing after happiness. And the truth is that we do it too. One of my favorite quotes uh, about uh, the search for human happiness comes from the actor Jim Carrey. Occasionally he says things I think that are really smart. Here's one thing he said. I wish that everyone could get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that's not the answer. Gosh, I wish that every person in Los Angeles sometimes, I do, I wish they could get everything they want. Because here's my experience of people in LA. 
And I've had this, this has happened to me. I've met with someone who's at the top of their industry and they're not happy. And then I've met with someone who works under them, who thinks that when they get to where they're at, they'll be happy. And then I've, worked, I've talked to someone who's below them, who thinks if they just get to where they're at, they'll be happy. And I've talked to someone who thinks that if they just get a job working there, they'll be happy. My, my thing is that I think that we oftentimes in LA, we're all banking, none of us are happy, but we're all banking on the belief that we will be if we keep doing what we're doing now. Right? If, I, if I stay in this job, if I continue to serve, eventually I'll have this much money, I'll have this kind of life, I'll do this, and then I will be happy. And what they don't realize, what we don't realize, is we are often chasing something that actually won't satisfy. Christian joy is not externally stimulated. Christian joy is not externally stimulated. I hope that you would know this. That quote on that wall or in this text is written by a man who is currently locked up in prison who is unsure if he is going to be executed. Think about that. How is it possible for you to write, rejoice in the Lord always? Again, I, he writes it twice. Rejoice, rejoice. How do you rejoice if you're locked up in prison? If you're not sure if you're going to be executed, what well, you have to begin to believe that joy, the joy that Paul's talking about in this letter, isn't found based on your current circumstances. Instead, it has to come, Christian joy always comes internally by the Spirit through Christ. And so what does Christian joy look like? It looks like being completely known so that you don't have to pretend that you're someone you're not. It means someone knowing your secrets, your secret thoughts, your actions, the actions you're ashamed of, the things that you won't confess to anybody. It means that somebody seeing you exactly as you are, and then in the midst of you being fully and completely known, that person saying, I fully know you, and I fully love you, and I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. And no matter what happens in this life, I will always be with you. That is Christian joy. That is something knowing that when you place your faith and your trust, not in your family dynamic, not in your workplace, not in your, uh, in your uh, clothing, not in, your, in, the, in the affirmation of others, not in being viewed as being famous or successful, but when you ultimately find your identity wrapped up in a God who knows you now and will know you forevermore, it liberates you from the slavery of believing that if just your external circumstances work out, everything's going to be okay. That's how you can be in chains and still be free, because you know that there is a God who knows you and loves you no matter what. That is Christian joy. That's not human happiness. Um, I, had a, I heard a story of a, a guy who uh, walked into his workplace and he was really um, depressed. And uh, this is an interesting pastor move. I imagine that Lorenzo and Casey would not do this. Uh, but they said, uh, the pastor said to this uh, young man who looked down and depressed, he said, how are you doing? And he said, oh, things are really difficult. And the pastor asked this question, um, are you still going to heaven? And uh, the guy said, uh, yeah. And he goes, okay, I thought something was really wrong. Now, don't say that to people. Don't take that as my advice. 
but hear it as at least something that should stir in your mind a little bit, which is where do you ultimately place your hope? Where do you, the opposite of joy is hopelessness, right? It's hopelessness. It's knowing that, it's knowing I don't know if my future is good. I don't know if everything's gonna be okay. I have no idea what's going to happen. That is the opposite of joy. Where do you look for joy? Are you looking for joy in your career? Are you looking for joy in your fame, in your success? Are you looking for joy in the number of people who uh, appreciate your social media you know, uh, views? Are you, we look for acceptance and joy and happiness in all the wrong places. And I'm with Augustine on this one. You will consistently always be restless until you find your rest in God. G.K. Chesterton said that a man who knocks on the door of a whorehouse is looking for God's love. I believe that that's true. We look all kinds of places for something that can only be found in Christ. All right, here we go. Uh, Christ in our relationships, Christ in our joy. Third up, Christ in our anxiety. This one ought to be good. Christ in our anxiety. One of the most famous texts, uh, uh, verses out of Philippians is uh, the uh, Philippians uh, 4, chapter 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Um, we are anxious all the time as people. We worry all the time. In fact, the word worry means to choke. And so often our anxiety is like that. Our anxiety and worry like to live in the future. It captures our imagination and begins to stimulate an outcome that is not yet happened, but we think probably is going to happen. We are anxious all of the time. Now in our society, we love visionaries. We love it when someone stands up and gives us a beautiful picture of the future. When someone says, this is what the future is going to be like, it's going to be amazing. In fact, in a lot of ways, Lorenzo and Casey are visionaries in the church, right? They have this picture of what they want for collective, and they stand up and say, here's where we're headed, here's where we're going, it's, here's why it's going to be great. And we in our society love visionaries. We've got two movies about Steve Jobs in like three years. We love the idea of the visionary. Here's what I want you to know about yourself. You, when you are worried and anxious, you are a visionary, just minus all of the optimism. You're a visionary. You are the Steve Jobs of your life. You paint a picture of the future, but all of it's going to be bad, right? I haven't gone to the doctor yet. I'm going to go. It's going to be terrible. I've got the worst diagnosis possible. I haven't taken the test yet. I'm going to fail. I'm not going to get into that school and my whole career is going to be terrible, right? I'm going to get in the car and the accident is going to happen and I'm going to die. You are a visionary, but you're very bad at it. And you've got a very bad outlook on the future. Your worrying self is a bad visionary. Now the Bible doesn't talk about visionaries. The Bible talks about prophets. And do you know what the rule is in the Old Testament to be a prophet? You need to be 100% right 100% of the time. 100% right 100% of the time. If you're not right, do you know what the Bible calls you? A false prophet. Here's what I want to remind some of you. Your anxious self is a false prophet. 
constantly predicting futuristic outcomes that never actually come into existence. You worry about things that don't actually end up happening. And what you need to learn how to do about your own anxiety and worry is to call it what it is. It's a false prophet. It should not, it does not get to tell you the future and it is often wrong. But anxiety is very hard to sort of reason with. When my wife and I are on an airplane, sometimes she gets a little worried about the airplane crashing. And then I say, very logically, this airplane's not gonna crash. The odds of it crashing are incredibly slim. We have a better chance of winning the lottery. And then my wife will say, but some people win the lottery. Um, and that's the problem with anxiety. You can't actually have that, you know, and our own anxiety does the same thing, but like aliens could invade and you're like, well, no, aliens aren't gonna invade, but I guess they could. It's hard. I mean, that, it gets very hard to sort of argue with your own anxiety because there's some sort of twisted view of logic in there somewhere. The reality is we're anxious all the time. We're worried all the time. And here's what we can do. We can remind our anxiety of its track record. Its track record is very, very poor. And yet we still have anxiety. So what do we do with it? Uh, I love this, that in the ESV, in the, in the NIV, which is the, the version that I preach out of most often, it says, um, the Lord is near, period, do not be anxious about anything. There's a new sentence. And many Christians have memorized the do not be anxious about anything part. But in the ESV, it's actually different. In the ESV, there's a little semicolon there. And that's because in the, ES, there's in, the punctu- in the original Greek in which this text is written, there's no punctuation. So interpreters have to make decisions about where the Lord is near works. Does it connect to what Paul just said about joy or does it move forward into anxiety? In the ESV, it appears that they've connected it to anxiety, which means, and I think this is beautiful, that, uh, that you are never, ever alone in the midst of your anxiety. See, we memorize be anxious in nothing or do not be anxious about anything. Sometimes I wish that we would just memorize the Lord is near, be anxious in nothing, right? That we would start a little bit further back. And the reason is because when we are anxious, we always feel alone. But the Bible again and again and again reminds us that God is near, that God is with us, that God will be with us. When we remind people of things again and again and again and again and again, we call it nagging. When the Bible does it, it's because we desperately need to hear it. So you find with Isaac and Moses and the Psalms and even in Jesus's prayers, you feel, you you read again and again, do not be afraid, I am with you. Do not be afraid, I am with you. Do not be afraid, I am with you. I will be with you is like a motto that happens all throughout scripture. God is still Emmanuel, And when you are feeling anxious, I would beg you to remember that even though you feel alone, you are not alone. We do not worship a God who is somewhere off busy doing something else. We worship a God who is here and who is with us and who wants to meet us in the midst of our anxiety. But in addition to that, we are given an opportunity in our anxiety to pray And prayer in anxiety is counterintuitive. It's often the last thing we want to do. And yet that means it's the thing that we are supposed to do. If prayer seems hard in the midst of anxiety, it's because it means you're on the right path. And it comes with a promise. In scripture, Paul says, don't be anxious in anything, but in everything with prayer and petition. Here is the promise. 
we get to give God our worries and we get to receive from God peace. Notice in the text that that, uh, Paul does not say you will be relieved of your circumstances. That's not what Paul says. So you might be in a difficult situation. You might be experiencing some anxiety and Paul doesn't say prayer means that God will take away circumstances. No, instead God promises to do something, namely to give you peace. So anxiety is an opportunity. When you feel anxious, you are presented with an opportunity. What will you do with your anxiety? Will you attempt to bury it within yourself? Will you continue to believe your heart when it says you're all alone and things are terrible and nothing good's gonna happen and you should and and God is far away and, and you can't do anything with this? Or will you proclaim to yourself the promise of what scripture teaches? That is, you are not alone. This is an opportunity for you to surrender it to God and to receive peace in the midst of that. The question I have for you is, what do you do with your anxiety? When you are anxious, when you are worried, what do you do with it? All right, lastly, Christ in our thinking. In, verse, in, in chapter four, verse eight, Paul says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. You can uh, kind of take your pick of any of these things you want to think about, but what I would want to remind you is that it's important as Christians that we think about what we think about. Um, There's a pastor named John Tyson who I have a great appreciation for, and he put this out on Twitter recently that I thought was great. He said that he is committed to reading the Gospels more than reading the latest political news. And I thought that was really powerful because when I think about what I typically think about, it's remarkable how much time I spend thinking about things that aren't the things I should think about. And part of that for me is because I came from a church tradition that told me there are certain things I'm not supposed to think about. Don't think about that. Don't think about that. Don't think about that. And then what happened is you find yourself thinking about that a lot, right? Live differently, be completely different than the culture. And then all of a sudden I got a little bit older and I decided this seems a little, this doesn't seem like a, I don't have a healthy relationship to the world. I don't know how to engage with it. I only know how to like be in a giant Christian bubble. So I did this other thing that I don't think we should do, but we sometimes do. And that is I decided to embrace everything that the culture has to offer. Let me just ask you a simple question. Is there anything that you don't consume because you are Christian? Is there anything that you say, you know what, that's probably too intense, or no, I don't think that's helpful? Or or do you find yourself often captivated or constantly thinking about things that just aren't that helpful to think about? It's amazing to me how often even people in our own church will talk, like will live like based on what happened in Game of Thrones. Sometimes I think that if you listened to us carefully, you would think that Game of Thrones was the reality that we lived in based on our anticipation of it and our constant joy from it. I'm not knocking any of that, but what I am trying to remind us is that we do sort of lean into the things that we perpetually think about. 
I'm not, I'm not arguing that we're garbage in, garbage out people. What I am saying is that for Paul, he seems very concerned that Christians think about what they think about on a regular basis. What is it that occupies your mind? Christian faith isn't about emptying your mind. It's about filling your mind with the truth of God and the truth of Scripture. I'm a big fan of the Puritans. Sometimes the Puritans I find really helpful. And here are some things they said that we should often think about. They said we should think about the majesty of God, the severity of sin, the beauty of Jesus, the certainty of death, the promise of renewal, and the misery of separation. I think those are beautiful things to think about, and those are worth writing down. But the thing I'm most interested in is, do you think about what you think about? What is it that dominates your thinking? What is it that captivates your imagination? What is it that you spend the most time thinking about? What is it that has your affections? Again, I think that there's a lie out there that says one of two opposites. It says we should avoid everything. I can't tell you how many times as a kid growing up, I trashed all of my secular CDs. What I wouldn't give to have some of those CDs back today, right? What a waste of money. Like, but there's this one view that says avoid everything. And sometimes there's an overcorrection in the Christian church which says embrace everything. All I want to do is to challenge you to think about what you think about to think about what captivates your imagination, to think about what it is that you sort of are constantly ruminating on, and to challenge you to, to, to really think about memorizing scripture. Are any of you familiar with Awana? Anybody show hands? Anyone familiar with Awana? My kids go to Awana. I went to Awana a little bit as a child, and Awana taught me to hate memorizing scripture. Um, I'm not sure why. It always, I always felt, this is just me. This isn't like a universal, uh, I like Awana. My kids go to it now. But uh, Awana always taught me, like, you memorize scripture, and then you get to play the game. And so I was always like, oh, gosh, I got to memorize scripture so I can play the game. I couldn't stand it. But now as an adult, I find that the scriptures I memorized in Awana, I still have buried within me somehow. And they come out in the most helpful of places uh, and times. I think that one thing we've typically abandoned is memorizing scripture. And again, here, I want to challenge you, if you're not in a habit of filling your mind with scripture, it's worth thinking about because what you think about really matters. Paul closes in verse nine by saying, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Paul ends by saying, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Christ in your relationships, Christ in your joy, Christ in your anxiety, Christ in your thinking. We put these things into practice because of what Christ has done for us and because we are a people who believe that the good news of Jesus isn't just the thing that saves us, it's the thing that invites us into a life with God that is a life of rest and peace and hope and beauty. And that's the life we're after because that's the life that shines brightly in a city of restless people who are all banking that if just tomorrow goes 
the way they want it to, then they will be satisfied. We are the ones in this city who stand up and declare, we have good news for you. Not only will that not satisfy you, but there is one who will satisfy you. There is one knocking at the door of your heart who knows you, who has been pursuing you, who doesn't want to ever give up on you, one who can provide you with the rest that you're looking for. We are a people who carry into this world very good news. And it's not just good news that affects a sliver of our life. It's good news that affects the whole of our life. So put it into practice, church. Inject Christ into these areas. But let me just say what I started with. You will do this and you will fail. And religion proclaims that the successfulness of you practicing your faith is what determines whether or not you are good enough. Christian faith is wholly different than that because Jesus cuts it off at the pass, comes to us right in the midst of where we're at and declares to us that our performance plays no bearing on where we stand with God. We are loved, known, accepted, invited, assured by God, not because of what we ever do, but because what Christ has done for us. So our lives then, our whole lives, get to be giant thank you cards for the God who we know loves us and accepts us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.